Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, glad you braved the cold and came out to uh, join us this morning. Uh, when I was a kid, or at least a part of, you know, different groups that you had to do icebreakers, we always would play a game called Two Truths and a Lie. Does anyone else know this game? Okay, so the premise is that you tell someone three statements. Either they're all like un, all un, a little unbelievable or all pretty, like they could all be true. And then the other person has to guess which one of those is a lie and which one is truth. Uh, so I thought we'd start off this morning with a little uh, game of two truths and a lie. And I thought I'd kind of use the other teaching pastors as examples. Uh, and I'll join in at the end. But so we first we have Dugan's and I'm going to read three statements and then we'll just vote on which one you think is, uh, you know, the lie. So first one, Dugan has been scuba diving at the Great Barrier Reef. Number two, Dugan was a background extra in an episode of Chicago Fire. Or three, Dugan's best man broke his collarbone two weeks before his wedding. All right, who thinks the lie is number one? Raise your hand. Okay, who thinks the lie is number two? All right, majority, at least over one. Three, that he broke his collarbone two weeks before his wedding. All right, so it looks like uh, consensus is number two. Would You are right. Uh, Dugan was never a background extra in uh, an episode of Chicago Fire. He has been scuba diving, which was news to me when, I, when he sent this. Um, but I was there when he broke his collarbone uh, playing, you know, backyard football with his uh, best man. And his soon-to-be wife was pumped about that. Um, so here's John. We've got John's next. Uh, John is, number one, is currently rebuilding a motorcycle in our garage. Uh, number two, John has a terrible sense of direction and still gets lost driving around Sun Prairie. Or three, John has recently gotten into woodworking as his new hobby, because if you know him, he's a hobbyist. So let's uh, just show of hands who think, one, that he's rebuilding a motorcycle in our garage is the lie. All right, <clears throat> two, that he has a terrible sense of direction. Who thinks that's the lie? Oh, it's so embarrassing for him that not many people think that's the lie. <laughs> Either way this goes, not good for John. Uh, number three, he's recently gotten into woodworking. Who thinks that's the lie? All right, so consensus is the motorcycle, uh, which is true. He does have a motorcycle in our garage that he is rebuilding so very, very slowly. So, so slow. Um, uh, he does have a very terrible sense of direction. Often I'll get calls. Uh, hey, I'm going to be a little bit later. I took the wrong turn. I thought this road led to this, but it didn't. And now I don't know where I am. Uh, but he has not gotten into woodworking. There are so many good qualities and words you'd use to describe John. Handy is not one of them. Um, so... Uh, all right, here's mine. Number one, I have a strong fear of birds stemming from being attacked by a rooster in third grade. Number two, I have a lead foot and have been pulled over nine times, but only resulting in three speeding tickets. Or I have something called Raynaud's syndrome, causing my toes to turn white and numb if they get too cold. All right, number one, who thinks number one is my lie that I have a deep fear of birds? All right, number two, uh, that I have a lead foot and have been, what are you saying about me? Oh, no, no, you're believing in me that I'm not a, okay, I get that. Uh, and then three, what's the lie? I have Reynolds syndrome causing my toes to turn white and numb. All right, my lie is number two, that I have a lead foot. I do have a lead foot, but I have not been pulled over or had a speeding ticket in all of my driving history. So knock on all the woods up here uh, that that does not happen. I do have a strong fear of birds, and I was attacked by a rooster and have scars to prove it. Uh, and then anyone else have Raynaud's syndrome where you get white, clear toes? It is very frustrating to live in Wisconsin with that, um, with that problem. 
Well, we are in a series called True Story uh, that we're taking a look at the lives of men and women who have lived this idea of a story worth telling. And the good news for us in this series is that it is not about some parts of it are true and some parts of it are a lie, and we've got to figure out which one is that. But all of this is truth. But sometimes some of the stories that we're telling do seem a little crazy. But it's been such a good series for me to sit under and to be challenged by and inspired by in my own faith. And throughout this series, we've kind of collectively said together that we want to pray this prayer. And you've, maybe you've, hopefully you've gotten it on a card. If you haven't gotten the card, stop by the info desk. But the prayer is together, Lord, expand my vision. Right? Lift my eyes to something then what's right in front of me. Expand my vision. Ignite my passion. Give me something to pursue and to be called to. And then cultivate blank in me. And the idea is that we're trying to figure out and ask God to speak to us individually. God, what do you want to cultivate in me? In the year of 2019, what is something that I can pay attention to, that I need to see how you're working in my life and, and how we can see you work never before? And then we're all going to kind of, kind of hopefully pray this to pray together and, and understand. And so throughout this series, we're kind of diving into one word each week, and maybe that's the word that God uses to speak to us. And at the end of this series, we're going to have a chance to kind of mark this moment of what we feel God is asking us to fill in that blank. So I want to encourage you and challenge you to keep praying this prayer boldly and to pray this consistently and watch God show up. God, would you expand my vision? Would you ignite my passion? And what do you want to cultivate in me? In week one of the series, we learned about the story of Beniah and how he chased down a lion into a pit on a snowy day. And our word was courage. Because he showed immense courage and we were challenged to be men and women of courage and boldness to walk with God in ways that show his strength. In week two, we learned about a man named Simeon and our word was patience because this man displayed such patience and waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled in his life. And last weekend, we learned about Dr. Reverend, uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and how he lived his life with this word, sacrifice and imploring us all to live worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and that we live a life that is not just good for ourselves, but that's good for others too. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a really small story that happens in the book of Joshua and that while it is small, has had a big impact on me. I've learned over the past few years that sometimes that God's God moments come in the least expected of places. And while I have distinctively seen God work in big ways and in big moments or big events, I have also distinctively seen God work in small moments, in ordinary points of my life. I have felt him speak deep and profound truth to me while I was making craft mac and cheese for my kids. I have sensed his overwhelming presence on a typical Tuesday sitting in my office responding to emails. I have listened to his promptings and heard him speak while I was driving in silence in my car. I have seen him work and show up in pickup line conversations and heard his voice speak to my spirit during walks around the neighborhood, and I've watched him show up in bedtime prayers. And so because of all of this, I have tried to be intentional to look for God moments or look for God truths in what seem to be just common and ordinary places in Scripture. And the story I want to look at today comes from both or two books in the Old Testament, both the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. And the fact that this little story was told twice tells us that while it's just a few sentences, it has significance enough to be told. And so I want to just spend some time maybe learning what we can from this. It's an obscure little story found about a woman named Aksa in Joshua chapter 15. 
But to give a little background before we jump into this story, uh, I want to talk a little bit about kind of how we get here. So Aksa is the daughter of a man named Caleb. And Caleb had been known among the Israelites as a man of deep faith, a man of integrity, and a man of strength. The first time that we see Caleb enter the scene is when the Israelites have been freed from their captivity. So they were under uh, the, the rule of the Egyptians for over 400 years. And God said, hey, I see you and I'm going to free you. The Lord promised them then that they would have a land of their own, which was something they had never experienced before. And it was amazing for them. So they came to this place that the Lord had promised to them in the land they see. But they see that it is already occupied by a group of strong individuals. So Moses, who's the leader at the time, says, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to send in some spies to kind of just pay it, see kind of what are we up against. So once the spies come back, all but two of them say there's no way. It is too dangerous. Like we are certainly going to be defeated. God is crazy to think that we'd ever occupy that land. But there's two men, Caleb and Joshua, and they stand firm in the promise of what God says. And they say, we don't need to worry. The Lord will surely be our strength. And so because of their faith, Moses tells both of them that they will inherit their own territory for their own families and their legacy of people. So another 40 years goes by from this event, and the Israelites go through a pretty tumultuous time of battle and of wandering and disobeying God and complaining. But Caleb stays strong and faithful. By now, when we pick up the story, Moses has has died, and he's passed the baton of leadership onto a man named Joshua, the other spy in the story. And Caleb now, he's, he's prob- more, is guessing to be in his mid-80s, and he goes to Joshua and says, hey, Moses promised us this land and territory because of our faithfulness back then, and so I'd like to have mine now because I'm still strong enough to take over and to be able to lead. So Joshua agrees and gives Caleb a large piece of territory of his own. So then, but Caleb also recognizes, I'm going to have to go uh, kind of figure out how to occupy this. So Caleb says to his men, hey, we need to conquer this land. The land is Kiriath Sefer. And whoever leads us in success to this, whoever helps us make this happen, can also have my daughter as their wife. Now, different than the world we live in today, it was customary for a father to give his daughter in marriage. Uh, honestly, for, for many times, a father would, would, could, had the right to be able to sell his daughter into slavery or to make trades for a daughter or to just give his daughter over in marriage for just a small price, but not Caleb. See, he was only going to offer his daughter to the best, to the one worthy of her hand, because no man would just do, like the one who led everyone into battle. This man needed to be the cream of the crop. And maybe it's because he was protective of his daughter, Maybe because he knew his daughter, as we'll later see, that he knew that it would take a strong man to appreciate his daughter's own strength. Caleb's daughter was named Aksa, and Aksa means, is interpreted to mean the word anklet. And at this period of time, both men and women would often wear bracelets, and women uh, would wear anklets and ankle bracelets to kind of adorn themselves. Uh, They'd be made of gold and kind of make a sound when they walked. And Aksa, who seems by all records to be Caleb's only daughter, Her name means that she was seen as this beautiful, worthy adornment to him. That she was prized and she was loved and she was a woman of great worth. So we pick up this story in Joshua 15. So Caleb says, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the one who attacks and and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, the son of Caleb's brother Kenaz, was the one who conquered it. So Aksa became Othniel's wife. So Caleb says, hey, whoever captures this land gets to marry my daughter. Othniel says, I will rise to the challenge, and he gets to marry Aksa. 
Now, customs of the day would say that when a woman is given in marriage, often a gift is given with her uh, as just a sign of a transaction. Often it's a piece of jewelry or maybe small amounts of gold. But we learn here that Caleb went beyond this customary small bride gift and gave Axa and Othniel a great deal of land, which was an extravagant gift. But the land he gave them did not have a water source. So I'm sure when they kind of arrived to their plot of land and they looked for what, how they were going to inhabit this, they looked around and saw while this was a generous gift, it would be hard to survive. And more than that, it'd be hard to thrive without a source for water. Caleb gifts them with land to live on, but the twist is that he gives them land in Negev. This is land in the desert. Negev was a place of rocky terrain with sand dunes that were known to reach over 100 feet high. I am sure that this is not what Aksa had envisioned when starting her new life. A life in the desert. What she dreamed of for her new married life, I'm sure it included like lush lands and access to necessities and beautiful scenery. But here she was in the rocky and dry and desolate desert. But she would know that they would need to be able to have gardens and they need to be able to house livestock. And without a source for water, all of this would be nearly impossible. But what I love about this story is watching how Axa responds. It doesn't say that she became angry or resentful. She doesn't question her father's love for her. She doesn't become paralyzed with fear or discouragement. It's almost as if she looks around. She realizes that in order to make this work, they're going to need something else. And then she does what she needs to do. AXA in this story shows fortitude. Fortitude is one of those words that we don't hear often, we don't often use in conversation, but I love the definition of this word. Fortitude is the strength of mind that enables a person to encounter or bear pain or adversity with courage. AXA looks around and she sees that what she has is not ideal. This is not what she had hoped for, but she moves forward with the plan. So her first plan is, just, is verse 18. It says, when Axa married Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. So she tells her husband, hey, first things first, like I should ask you, you go and ask my father for a field. She doesn't say, hey, go tell him what in the world is he thinking? Or hey, can we trade some lands? But she just says, hey, we've, I, we're, we've been given this gift. Now what can we do to make, the, to be, make this sustainable? And we don't know why Othniel didn't ask the father, most likely because he was like, that is like a total sign of disrespect. I can't go to your dad and be like, hey, could I also have something else? But we do know that their desert life did not change. So again, Axa shows fortitude. She shows this strength of mind in adversity. And she gets on a donkey and she makes her way to Caleb, her father. Now this would have been completely out of the norm for any woman. And for some women, this would have been outright dangerous to go and approach your father without being called, to go and approach a man without being called could have even resulted in death. But at this point, for a woman to stand up to a man, let alone her father, it was extremely disrespectful in a time that women did not have the rights and even value that we know today. This was a different time. And so when, right, when the writers of this story wrote this in, they knew that the readers in the early days would understand this is a bold and brave thing to do. But I also remember that Axa grew up alongside her father, Caleb. And from other writings and texts, there is an understood belief that Caleb was a great man, that he was a man of integrity. 
And I have to guess that Axa knew that when she got on her donkey that day that she would be approaching him and she would be met with a safe experience and she would be met with love. As by her name already means, she was the adornment of her family. And as she approaches her father, we'll see in a minute that the text even says that Caleb recognizes she means business. She isn't there to visit. But Caleb had raised her, so I am actually sure that he was not surprised when he saw her. I'm sure he recognized that face, even from a little girl, of determination, of resolve, and of fortitude. And he asks her, what's the matter? And she goes about her next request humbly and reverently and yet boldly. It says, as she gets down off of her donkey, Caleb asks her, what's the matter, right? So we know there's a countenance on her that is like, I've got something on my mind. And she says, give me another gift, another gift, right? You've already, she's recognizing this, you've already given me land in Negev. Now give me some springs of water too. Notice that she doesn't approach him bemoaning what he had given her. She doesn't complain or ask why or just beg for something different. I think because she knew that her father loved her. That he, I mean, he wanted the best husband for her. He accepted her approaching him. I'm guessing they had this you know, great relationship at the time, even though it wasn't socially acceptable to do so. I have to imagine that this was a loving exchange. She trusted him and her gift, even if she didn't see it quite that way. But Axa acknowledges, hey, what I've been given is a gift. I named it. I, you've given me the land of Negev. I've received that gift. I accept that gift, and I'm grateful. But I'd like to ask for an additional one. In essence, she says, I'd like something more. You've already given me life in the desert, and if I'm going to live there, I'm going to need some water. If I'm going to thrive in the place that I have been given, then I'm going to need some resources to survive, to bring life, and to bring sustainability. I can make this work, Father, but then please give me the life source to do so. And Caleb hears his daughter's request, and Caleb granted her request, and not only did he grant it, he doubled it. He gave her the upper springs and the lower springs as well. Caleb rewarded her tenacity, he rewarded her determination, and then he blessed her doublefold. Each and every one of us want to live out what we would consider our plan A. We imagine what we want in life, what we want our lives to look like, and in some ways we all put a lot of stock and hope in the reality of our plan A working out. But my guess is in this room, there's some of us that are not on our plan A. Some of us are on to plan B. Some of us are staring down plan C. Some of us are trying to survive in plan W. And some of us, we feel like I've moved beyond the letters and I'm in symbols now, like just plain ampersand. That's, that's my life. That's the life that I'd be living. But we all come into our lives with plan A, and unfortunately, a lot of times, that's not the life we actually live. So what do we do with that? What do we do when we look around and feel like the gift we've been given feels unsustainable? When we look around and recognize, man, this is not what we would have chosen. Maybe you feel like you've been given a desert a place that you never wanted to be. And sooner or later, each of us will find ourselves in a place that we never would have chosen, a place that can feel dry and desolate, a place that can feel unbearable to be in. And maybe it even feels like a mean gift. And maybe if you're honest, it feels like maybe God hasn't taken care of you. 
But what if we took this lesson from AXA? What if we took this idea of living with fortitude, of living with a strength of mind so that we can take on pain and adversity or a life in the desert with courage? Now, this doesn't mean that we put on rose-colored glasses and pretend everything is fine, right? AXA didn't just say, well, you know what? I bet I can grow a garden here with my love. This doesn't mean that we just grin and bear it and try to make it in the desert. AXA didn't hunker down and try to squeeze water out of sand. She didn't just resolve to living in lifeless conditions. This doesn't mean that we don't call a desert exactly what it is, a desert, barren and filled with, and not filled with life. But Axa didn't look around and say, you know what, the sand and these hundred-foot dunes, they are actually just perfect. They're beautiful. But what she did do was get on her donkey and ask for some water. See, Axa had a choice. She could have said, I think I've decided my father doesn't love me. She could have lived in the desert with deep bitterness and despair and doing what she could do to survive on her own. And no doubt, because she's human, some of those feelings rose up in her. They had to. But Axa made the choice to not let them stay. She decided to do something else. She decided to live with fortitude, and she got herself on a donkey, and she approached her father, and she asked him for the source that would bring life to her desert. She asked him for some water. Because she knew the only way to live in this land for as long as she was going to live there was to connect to the source of life. Sheryl Sandberg, the author of Lean In and COO of Facebook, she gave a commencement speech on an idea similar to this. She had been married to her husband for a handful of years, and they had built this life together they had, she had envisioned would last forever. <clears throat> but recently, she lost her husband unexpectedly to a heart attack and was left picking up the pieces. She was thrown into a new life, one that she didn't want. And so she had to help navigate for her kids a life without their dad and for her a life without her partner, but without her love, it was not her A plan. But she writes, A few weeks after Dave died, I was talking to my friend Phil about a father-son activity that Dave was just not here to do. So we came up with a plan to fill in for Dave, but I cried to him, but I want Dave. And Phil put his arm around me and said, Option A is not available, so let's just kick the heck out of option B. I love that line. If plan A is not available, then let's just kick the heck out of plan B. And maybe we all need to get to the point that we recognize that for whatever reason, plan A is not an option. We recognize this, and there comes this period of grief, a time that we go to to grieve what has been lost or to grieve what has been hoped for or to grieve what we believe has been taken from us or to grieve that this is just not how it's supposed to be. And we do what we need to do to grieve that. And then once we recognize and embrace and allow ourselves to have the time to grieve that because that part is so important, then the time comes to shift gears. And like AXA, to begin to have new perspective and a new prayer. Instead of, why can't I have what I wanted? We begin to ask, please give me what I need to thrive here. What I also love that AXA asked for is that she wasn't vague, right? She didn't approach her father with just this open request of like, I don't know, just give me something. Right? She wasn't irreverent. She wasn't snarky. She surveyed what I have been given she recognized, hey, I, this is what would make it sustainable for me. And then she asks for springs of water. We have a father who loves us deeply. We are his creation. We are his prized people. We are his sons and daughters. And he gave everything he had 
for us and to us. And we are promised his presence. We are not promised our A plan. And in some point in our life, we're going to feel like we've been given a desert, a place that feels dry and deserted, and there's not a possible way to live there. It could be due to illness or a relationship or a job. It could be due to circumstances we never would have chosen or situations that were placed on us that we just don't know that we have what it takes to survive in that type of land. But we have a Father who sees us. And we have the opportunity and invitation to lift our heads a bit and see that there are springs of water to be asked for. We have the opportunity to take time to seek him and his spirit and ask, what is it that we need to do to thrive in the land that we've been given for as long as we're going to be here? And then to go to our Father and ask for it with boldness and with humility and with fortitude. These past few months, I've watched my parents live out these words, fortitude. Due to a variety of circumstances, the past six years for them have felt like my parents have been living in their own des desert. But similar to AXA, they just kept asking for water. And while God came through, he didn't change their territory, but he sustained their sometimes dry and desolate land. And in a, be a beautiful journey of Providence, a little over a year ago, they ended up in a small town in the Gulf Coast called Port St. Joe. They quickly immersed themselves into this quaint and quirky community, and it felt like home, they said, the minute they arrived. And after what seemed like six years of living in the desert, of living in the unknown, this place felt like the lush and beautiful land that they had been waiting for. This was a place of new beginnings, a place of exciting futures, a place of restoration, a place of healing, and a place of peace. I took the kids down to visit them last October, and as I just watched them interact with this new place, I audibly, like out loud, thanked God so many times for the blessing that this place meant to them. This place seemed like the light at the end of a long and sometimes very dark tunnel. But on our second to last day there, when we got, we got word that there was a hurricane brewing in the Gulf, um, and no one in their town was worried because they hadn't seen a hurricane hit that area in decades. But then we watched in horror as the hurricane seemed to zero in on their area exactly. So a mandatory evacuation was given, and within 24 hours, we had packed up what they could fit into their cars, elevated everything in their home, and secured uh, all the doors with sandbags. As I just looked around their new place and their new community, knowing that it probably would not look like this when they came back, I begged God please, God, don't let this be taken from them. This was more than stuff and furniture for them. This place represented healing and new beginnings and blessing. A few years ago, my mom had gotten a tattoo on her wrist that said, anyway. And it was based on the poem by Mother Teresa. Um, you can look it up. It's awesome. But it's just this idea of, like, even though we go through pain, even though, you know, people misunderstand us, like, I would do it again. I would do it all again anyway. And so she just got it marked on her wrist just as a moment of saying, hey, even though I've walked through years of pain and disappointment and, and betrayal, it feels like I would do it all again anyway. So after living through that season of unknown, when I was visiting her uh, in October, she had told me that week, hey, I'm getting a new tattoo. And it's going to say anywhere because I know that God will follow me anywhere. And it was based on a song called by Nicole Nordeman. And little did she know how prophetic that song would be. 
Because on the early morning of October 9th, before leaving their home to the unknown of Hurricane Michael, my parents stood in their kitchen with all their possessions stacked up high and their hopes and dreams for their new life and their new town kind of hung in the balance. My mom stood in the kitchen and read the song lyrics of this song anywhere over her and my dad and their, and their future. It says this, Into every life a little rain must fall, or so they say. We have seen our share of storms, you might agree. We learned early, don't hold tightly to the things that might not stay. Love what matters most, and you matter most to me. So when the wind blows in and carries us away, this is what we say to every hurricane. Love don't need a roof. Love don't need four walls. You can say my name. I'll come anytime you call. So let the storms roll in. Let the shingles fly. Love is not the fence we built around our lives. And anywhere we are, I'm all right. We dig cellars, we lay sandbags, pack the board the glass and pack the old van. We heed warnings till we're headed out of town. But we do not always make it. We are sometimes overtaken. We are not as fast as every funnel cloud. So when the siren sounds and when we close our eyes, this is what we say to the swirling skies. Love don't need a roof. Love don't need four walls. And you can say my name. I'll come anytime you call. So let the storms roll in and let the shingles fly. Love is not the fence we built around our lives. And anywhere we are, I'm all right. On October 10th, Hurricane Michael hurled itself at their portion of the Gulf Coast and took their home, most of their stuff, their careers, their town, and their hope for their future there. It was devastating. And of course, not just for them. It was devastating for the entire community. And there was grief. There was a lot of it. But you know what there also was? There was healing there was God's presence. There was God's provision. And while they felt like they were thrust into what felt like another season of desert living with no home for months and walking into the unknown with jobs and opportunities and trying to figure out where to go next, there was also deep faith and trust in their God because they had seen him show up before. And if you were to ask them, they would tell you that God brought them exactly what they needed. It did not change their loss but it gave them strength to keep going. He healed what they had needed him to heal. There was peace in the midst of chaos, and there was even laughter in the presence of pain. He brought water to their land. And just this past week, my mom sent me a picture of her new tattoo that said anywhere on her foot. She marked the moment with a tattoo years ago that even though their journey included pain and loss and disappointment, she would do it all again anyway. And now she marked the moment that through it all, she knows that God will be with them anywhere, even in the driest of deserts. Fortitude, the strength of mind that enables a person to encounter or bear pain and adversity with courage. I wish that desert life wasn't a part of our experience on earth. But from what I can tell and what I've experienced and what history has taught us, most of us won't escape it. At some point in our life, we're going to feel like we have been given life in a desert. And sometimes our deserts feel more desolate than others. Some of our deserts feel more isolated and some of our deserts feel more uncharted. But we don't have to walk through them and live through them without water. Axe's story is a beautiful reminder that we have a God and a Father that we can go to with our needs and we can petition him and we can ask him for favor to give us water in a dry land. 
Our prayer obviously is not about putting a coin in a machine and hoping that maybe something good will pop out. It's not necessarily a prayer for a different land. Ox's prayer began with a prayer of give me life to the land that I'm already in. A prayer prayer to bring life in the desert is a prayer of fortitude. That we look straight ahead at the land we've been given and we find courage how to bring life to it. If I'm going to live in the desert, then give me what I need to survive here. Give me the source of life to sustain what I've been given. Let's be people that live with this kind of fortitude, that live our lives with this strength of mind that we can encounter pain when it comes. We can encounter adversity when it comes. Of course we don't want it. Of course we're not going to seek it. But when it comes, when it feels like we've been thrust into life in the desert, we go at it with courage. We go at it knowing that we don't have to do it alone. We don't have to do it without a source of life because we've been given the author of life who says, I just want to give you water. With deep trust, we can go to our Father and ask him to provide what we need to water our souls and to give us the things that we need even in the desert. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this beautiful reminder. And again, I wish we could bypass desert life. I wish all of it was perfect and beautiful and lush, but it's not. And so what do we do with that? And God, I pray that you would raise up a group of men and women in a, in a church, God, that we can look and walk and trust in you, God, that we can approach you and say, God, give me what I need to survive. Give me the source of life. Allow me to tap in to the springs of water that can bring life and sustainability And allow me to thrive even with life in the desert. We don't know how long it lasts, but we do know that you promised to walk through it it with us. And we want to stand firm on that promise. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.